Well, amen. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in worship this morning. You can turn in your Bibles, church, to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, it's, a, it's really a book that I think has not been uh, in its history in the church, at least as far as from my perspective, the emphasis on this book has too often been misplaced. And I want us to see that this morning as we move through and see this overarching theme that I'm going to talk about in just a little bit that stretches through the book and really points us to the glory of God. And so as we in this moment in time and where we're at in uh, culture and in uh, the calendar year, um, we are approaching an um, election year. And so we are preparing ourselves to be inundated with uh, all sorts of media campaigns and different slogans and different clippable moments and all of these different things. So just a few weeks ago, a song went viral really out of nowhere, right? It wasn't sung by an ultra-rich star nor produced by a big-time label, and the song went viral for its content, not because of who was singing it or um, you know, who was promoting it necessarily. Uh, and it was, a, it was a fascinating example of sociology as the song simply went popular because of, again, because of its, its content. So it chides this song, uh, and I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard it by now, right? Rich men, north of Richmond. So it chides the American political system, and it champions the cause of the blue-collar worker. This was really the reason this song took off. It's because it resonated with people along with the way in which it was sung, right? So we find ourselves at a time where no one on the, the right or the left or indifferent is happy. And that's what really the song got to is that no one is, is pleased with our current state of affairs. Why? Because far too many people continue to look to the rulers of man for their happiness. Shamefully, this includes many so-called Christians. Now, this is how it seemingly goes. One team gets their guy in office and, and they breathe this collective sigh of relief, right? <sighs> Thinking this is, this is going to be it. This is going to be what turns things around. Only, it doesn't, right? Then, then what happens after that? The other team gets their guy in office, causing them to breathe the collective sigh of relief, saying, ah, whew, okay, this, this is it. While the other side that just, just lost, right, the other team said, well, if only my guy would have gotten another chance, right? So meanwhile, we've got two sides, one lamenting, one rejoicing, and then what happens? Nothing changes. And this is really what the song kind of gets to, Right? But here's the deal, and here's why I preface it with all of this, because you can feel kind of like some political tension already kind of like building right now, like where's this going? So the idea here is shame be on the church if we look to anyone other than Christ for the type of answers, the type of power and provision that, again, we see so many so-called Christians looking toward worldly politicians for. 
Shame be on the church if we look to anyone other than Christ for those types of things. The question I want to point us to at this moment as we prepare to enter into an election year is where should Christians look in an age of extraordinary government power? How do we fit in while standing out? And I want us to sharply focus, to answer this question, I want us to sharply focus on the sovereignty of God to bring all things to the praise of His glory in Christ Jesus. And the book of Daniel points us to such a source. So points us to that very thing, that the sovereignty of God is the answer in all of life's uncertainty, in all of life's uh, qualms with worldly leaders, and how do, we, how do we be in the world but not of the world. The sovereignty of God points us to how we answer these things, and the book of Daniel points us exactly to that, to the sovereignty of God. So I want to turn our attentions to the book of Daniel. So this is going to be a little bit different this morning than how we typically, typically we'll, we'll isolate one passage, right, and we'll, we'll work our way systematically, um, uh, expositing each verse. So this is going to be somewhat of a, a, a survey of the first four chapters of Daniel. Okay, so we're going to move through these four chapters of Daniel and looking to uh, what are the truths that this points us to for our time as the church here in America. So I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 to get us started. And then again, we're going to make our way through these first four chapters. So. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, uh, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we uh, delve into the treasured depths of the book of Daniel this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. Spirit, I pray that you would give us uh, an understanding according to your word to see how we rightly apply these truths to our current cultural context as the church in America and how we can glorify your name and look to your sovereignty in all things to steady us no matter the context, the time frame, or what have you. God, give us strength according to your word and help your church to live according to it. And I pray that you would draw the lost from their wandering to yourself uh, by it. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, when 
what we need to understand here is when the Babylonians would conquer other nations, they in turn saw this as a sign that their God was conquering the inferior gods of the nations whom they were taking control over. And so don't, don't forget, this is the, the very kingdom who God chose to use in judgment of his people. So we got King Nebuchadnezzar here of, of the Babylonians coming and besieging Jerusalem. This is what we've been building to as we made our way through the prophets, uh, the pre-exilic prophets, that is. And we've built up to this, God pronouncing time and time again that his judgment was coming upon the people. And now the time has come. And we see here, Daniel begins his book by noting, the, giving us a, a pinpoint in time of what has happened. So it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come to Jerusalem to besiege it. So this is a gut-wrenching time in the life of the people. They are experiencing tremendous loss. They've, they've seen loved ones have to be left behind. They've seen loved ones have to fall to the hands of their assailers. And all of this is at the hand of God's judgment. We can't lose sight of that. This is the very kingdom who God chose to use in judgment of his people for their repeated disobedience and rebellion to his covenant. And this is exactly what we read in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This is exactly what Jeremiah was talking about. This is exactly what all of our prophets leading up to this point have been pointing out is that God's judgment is coming as they faithfully preached his word. They said, this is what is coming. So now that time has come. And it's through Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that it has come time to pay according to God's judgment. So when the Babylonians conquered a people, they would take things from their places of worship and place them in their own temple. And so this was a, just like a trophy of sorts, right? To show that their God was superior to all the gods of all the places that they had taken. And so what we see there in verse 2, that's, that's what happened. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. His, and the Lord gives, notice that, the Lord is the one who gives Jehoiakim into the hand of King, of King Nebuchadnezzar. And along with that, he gives all of these vessels from the temple in which the Lord has repeatedly said, I'm cutting off the sacrifices. Your temple worship means nothing to me, right? And we've seen it time and time again, rend your hearts and not your garments. We've seen all of this language over again that what you're doing in that temple is meaningless if you're not obeying and serving me. And so now God has allowed this, what would just be utterly shameful to the people. God is allowing this to happen. For Nebuchadnezzar to take things from the temple of the Lord and bring them into the treasury of his own God as if to say that his God has conquered. And so this is just the people are, have experienced tremendous loss and now they have been religiously put to shame. 
Spiritually, they're just wrought with grief as much as they have of, of real grief at seeing loved ones harmed and having to leave behind loved ones. So this is not, not good times for the people of God at this point. Now, that's what we just read, again, in our opening text. Part of this process, they would allow their newly conquered subjects, though, to continue their worship practices under the pretense that their God was superior. That's the idea here, right? So they'll let them worship Yahweh, but they wanted the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they'll do that under the pretense that, that their God is superior, right? So that's the kind of the cultural idea here, what's, uh, what's going on. We need to understand this as we move through the book. So the Babylonian exile took part in two waves as the wealthy elites were taken first. Military leaders, scholars, so on, right? Those are who was taken first. And that's what we're seeing right here as uh, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, the royal family, nobility. So that's who goes in the first wave of the Babylonian exile. So followed by stage two of the Babylonian exile, which essentially includes everyone else. So they're taking young people from the royal noble families, putting them through this process of assimilation. Okay, so they're going to eat what the king eats. They're going to drink what the king drinks. They're going to learn Babylonian culture and lingo so that when everybody else gets there, they can then pass along like, hey, this is, this is who we are now. That's the idea is what's going on at this, as historically speaking, right here. So Daniel and his friends, they go through this little assimilation process. And that's, that's where we come to see our character and our author of the book as the king them, signs them a daily portion uh, to eat what he eats and to drink what he drinks. So Daniel and his friends, they, they begin this process of assimilation, uh, but they make one simple request. Right? Like, don't make us eat meat. Let us only eat vegetables and let us see how we compare to your folks at the end of this. Why? Because this meat would likely cause them to, to break God's law. It, would, it could be pork. It could be shellfish. It could be sacrificed to a false idol. Right? And so uh, that would be the most likely idea is that it would be sac- sacrificed to the pagan deities of Babylon, in which case they're taking part in worship of false gods. So they don't want to defile themselves. So they want to remain respectful to the king and to this process. But they say, just give us one caveat here, and that's that we don't have to eat what you eat. We're going we're to eat our own diet, and we'll see how we compare at the end. And now, I want us to understand at this point, this is the overarching theme of the book of Daniel and really the overarching theme of this morning's message is that God is eternally sovereign. Therefore, the glory of God is to be the supreme measure of our lives. So you can consider everything that's on your little outline there is kind of like sub points to what I just said there. God is eternally sovereign. Therefore, the glory of God is to be the supreme measure of our lives. You can even write that at the top of the outline if you want. I left a little extra space this morning, I think. So God is eternally sovereign. Therefore, the glory of God is to be the supreme measure of our lives. So don't just let that fly over you. Ponder that for a moment. Do you live your life with supreme peace, confidence, and joy 
as if God is eternally sovereign? Or is your mood and certainty of the future determined by other things? So does your life display the sovereignty of God? Or do you live in supreme fear, anger, and desire as if Satan were sovereign? Because far too many of us speak boldly and boastfully as we should of God's sovereignty, but then we live in fear as if Satan were. So the question, do you live your life as if God is in control or is your mood and certainty of the future determined by the ballot box? Is it determined by the bank account? Is it determined by what happens to you that day, each and every day, whatever it might be? And so as we, we look, there, this is an awful time in the life of Daniel and his friends. They've had to leave behind everything that they know. And now they're being asked to go through this assimilation process for their, the ones who have taken them from their home. And they don't lead a revolt or they don't, you know, they don't say, no, we're not doing this at all. They just say, all right, just, just give us one simple request. Let us remain faithful to our Lord is the idea here. And so you go down to verse 18 and you, they go through this process and um, he, you know, Daniel goes before the king uh, to resolve that he's not going to defile himself with the king's food or wine. And so he, he asks, he makes this request and uh, he goes before the king in verse 10. And notice how respectfully I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should we, he see that you were in worse conditions than the use of uh, who were are out of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. That's Ashpenaz speaking there. And so Daniel said to his steward, and whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, test your servants for 10 days. That's all he said. Give us 10 days. Let us eat vegetables and eat to eat and water to drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. So let, let us be compared here. And you go to verse 18. And notice what we see. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. So it's not just that their physical appearance was better, but like in every matter of wisdom and understanding, they proved to be better as well. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus." So what we see is that they excel as a result of their faithfulness to the Lord. The Lord gives them not only better physical appearance, but their understanding. And now as we move through the book of Daniel, and many of you are familiar with these stories, right? You remember these stories of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and we got the golden statue, what we're going to see here in a little bit. And Daniel is continually referred to and used by the king to do what? To provide interpretation of different dreams and stuff. Well, where did he gain that understanding? From the Lord. Gave him, gifted him with that through his faithfulness and obedience. So, as we see here, the book of Daniel is set up into to two halves. 
Okay? The first half is chapters 1 through 6, and it details six court narratives is what you can call them. Right? Six narratives in which Daniel or his friends are in the king's court. Okay? They're before the king. And these stories tell of how Daniel and his friends maintain faithfulness to the Lord in the midst of a hostile, opposed culture. So I want the rest of our time... I want to spend the rest of our time walking through these stories to see God's providential purpose displayed in his actions through Daniel and his friends here. So keeping in mind that main point, though, right? And I mentioned earlier, this, that's kind of the overarching theme of the book. That's the overarching theme of this sermon. God is eternally sovereign. Therefore, the glory of God is to be the supreme measure of our lives. Like, what are we doing to achieve the glory of God? To bring him glory. So we go to our next court narrative. So that's the first court narrative. And that kind of introduces us to the culture, the situation, the context. How does Daniel and his friends become, you know, to where they have an audience, a regular audience, a familiar audience with the king, right? And so we move to the next court narrative in chapter 2. So in this we have Nebuchadnezzar has his, what we are told of as his first dream. So it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're a, a full two years into this process of the Babylonian exile. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So he's distraught, right? He has this dream. The king commanded. And he asked all the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, all of these uh, false pagan spiritual people to come in and he summons them to tell them what these dreams mean. So they come and they stand, stand before the king and none of them can really do it, right? They can't really measure up to what's, what's going on here. They can't figure it out. And so the king gets very angry and furious and he commands that all of them be killed. So that's the type of person we're dealing with here, right? You look at that in verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded, and all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Just kill them all, right? So the decree goes out. The wise men are about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them as well. Then Daniel replied with prudence, this is verse 14, and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And so Daniel says, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Why is he demanding that he be killed so, you know, hastily? And so they make this deal. Daniel requests that he's able to go to uh, have a time and appointed to be with the king that he might interpret the dream for him. And so pick back up verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he goes home and he's like, let's, let's go before the Lord, throw ourselves at his mercy. Let's plead with God to save us and give us understanding in the midst of this situation. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So God answers their prayer, gives him understanding of the king's vision, right? And Daniel answered and said, verse 20, just listen to this shout of praise from Daniel. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what, it, what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So, Daniel's response to God answering and blessing and answering his prayer is that God's name be blessed forever and ever and evermore. And then notice right there in the middle of this declaration of God's glory what Daniel says, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. So he's the one who controls all the time. He removes kings and sets up kings. So the very king who's forcing and who's really nearly about to kill Daniel and his friends, he says God is the one who has placed that king in place. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So he acknowledges the, the very reason that I'm even able to go tell the king what his dream is about is totally by God's answering my prayer by his grace. He reveals deep and hidden things. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. So he roots his faith in the faith that God has remained faithful since the time of the fathers. For you have given me wisdom and might. You've answered my prayer, essentially, Daniel says. So then what happens? So he goes and he interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And you jump down to verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings. So notice, like Daniel just called Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. He's acknowledging, his, he's, he's already acknowledged that God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. So he's merely acknowledging that he is the one who is the most powerful king in all the land at this time. And Daniel gives him that homage of respect. That'll come to play here in just a little bit. I just got to take note of that. So, you, O king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. So he's interpreting the dream here. You're the head of gold in this dream. So what I want us to see here is because he goes on to interpret the rest of the dream for him, kind of breaking down the parts of what King Nebuchadnezzar saw and, you know, the head, the, the arms, the feet, uh, all these different things, the toes even. Uh, and so the, the king is obviously very pleased because... Uh, you know, he falls upon his face, what we see, and he pays homage to Daniel, is what he does. And in paying homage to Daniel, in verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So I want us to see this first thing, is that God providentially appoints rulers. Do not think for a second 
that anything in this world happens outside of the sovereign purpose of God. That is what Daniel rests in. That is what he pleads to God for in his prayer. And as God graciously answers his prayer, that's even what he acknowledges as he pays respect to a pagan king who has ripped him from his homeland, possibly killed some of his loved ones. And yet he he goes before him respectfully and he remains faithful to the Lord. So we must rest in this truth that God has a providential purpose and included in that purpose are the rulers of this world, even the ones who make a mockery of his name. So from the local level to the national, God is structuring everything for the purpose of his glory. Don't be swayed into a constantly and continuatively negative outlook when it comes to your job, your finances, family, situations, whatever it may be. Do you see these things as simply happening to you or do you see your life and the things around it as part of God's providential purposes for glorifying his name? Now, I'm not advocating here for us as the church to be apathetic and different or uninvolved. So to simply say, well, well God is the one who's in control. Uh, he is the one who appoints kings. So I just need to take a step back and everything, let the chips fall as they may. I don't need to be involved in it. It's going to happen no matter what. So that's, that's it. That's not at all the attitude that we see Daniel taking here. And that's not at all what I'm advocating for us. That when it comes to elections, politics, or anything else for that matter. In fact, quite the opposite. I want you to turn, keep your finger, we're going to stay here in Daniel, but go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Because at this same time that Daniel and his friends are being sent into exile is a, overlaps with the time of Jeremiah's ministry. And Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to this first wave of exiles that's being taken. And I want you to read what Jeremiah's letter is. What is the message from the Lord to these exiles? Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So that's, you know, Daniel's included in that bunch, right? So verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, so here's the letter, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, I must have skipped over the high school graduation part for that verse. So what you see is in this letter that Jeremiah sends to the very exiles, which Daniel is included in, is that as they go into exile, their goal is not, all right, just... Go along with it for a little bit and then stage a coup when you get there or start a revolt or no, it's build homes, plant gardens, plan to be there for a while. Let your families flourish there. Pray for the well-being of the city where I've sent you. For in its well-being, you will find well-being. And so it's to acknowledge that the Lord's hand is in this. And so... Although you might be in the midst of what is a horrible time, know that I have a plan to bring you out of that and from that establish a new covenant is what Jeremiah goes on to talk about. So again, I'm not appealing to you to take a stand back and let it happen approach. What I'm saying, what I'm trying to get us to see is that we can't let our own desires dictate how we respond to the outcome when it comes to our activity and our, our involvement in the time and culture in which God has placed us and brought us to be the church. We can't let our own desires determine how we respond to the outcome. Rather, when we constantly and consistently view the outcome as being determined by a good and sovereign God, our desires will be rightly aligned with His will and not ours. You see, for too long, I think the church in America has viewed themselves as Israel in the promised land, when in reality, we are called to live like Israel in Babylon. That our, our goal is to, sure, seek the well-being of the city where we are, but know that we are going to have to remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of opposition. So what happens is the opposition doesn't go away. So Daniel shows respect to the king, remains faithful to the Lord through the instance with the vegetables, now through this instance with the dream, and these, these things continue to happen. He continues to be given a, an audience with the king. And so you go to chapter 3, and what happens? It's the instance with the fiery furnace, right? So we have this golden image, Nebuchadnezzar, creates this golden image, sets it up. Everybody has to, when the music plays, stop what they're doing and worship it. But Daniel and his friends don't participate. And so because of such, they are, their lives are put into danger because they're directly disobeying a decree from the king. And so... Nebuchadnezzar brings them in and, and, and offers them an opportunity to just like, look, I understand you haven't been doing this. I'll give you an opportunity now 
and you can do it now. And they're like, nope, not going to happen, right? So you go on to verse 16 because they, he gets angry and he says, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands is the question of Nebuchadnezzar at this time. And so you go to verse 16 of chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. So this, this is one of those very familiar stories that we, we know all too well, right? So they are threatened, and they said, look, our God will save us, and even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. So, again, completely submitted to the sovereignty of God here is, is the attitude that we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they're thrown in the fiery furnace, and the Lord protects them, right? And so you go to verse 26. So Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. This is after the fire is already so hot that it kills those who throw them in. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together, saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So this is where the story begins to change. Because as Daniel and his friends continually remain faithful and continually be given an audience with the king... So they're continuing to respect, they're, they're planting gardens, they're uh, having families, right? They're being respectful just as Jeremiah instructed, or the Lord through Jeremiah. But they're also saying, we're going to, we'll remain loyal to you unless it calls us to remain disloyal to God, is the, the line that they've drawn there. And so even through this, as the king then draws a hard line on worshiping a false statue of himself, throws them into the furnace because of their disobedience to him and their obedience to God. We see now, at the end of it, King Nebuchadnezzar now begins to acknowledge once again 
Don't, but he's still acknowledging it as their God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So he's, he's acknowledging that God has some power. Again, they just would assimilate other cultures. They would let them worship their gods as long as they understand that their God, their false deity, is um, supreme to that of these others. So I want you to see here that God glorifies his name through the persecution of the saints. God glorifies his name through the persecution of the saints. Just as he has appointed King Nebuchadnezzar and his people have already experienced extreme persecution in the midst of this culture, he is continually making his name known in the life of Nebuchadnezzar through the very persecution. And this can be a tough one for us as the church in America to deal with because some will will take an overly sensitive approach and throw the word persecution around way too liberally. Everything becomes persecution. And I don't think that's the right approach. So how do we come to grips with this, this idea of God glorifying his name through the persecution of the saints? How do we have all this security and religious liberty? And how do we relate to texts like Philippians 1.29 where we see, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake while also realizing that there is a growing disdain and mockery toward Christians in our culture. Just like Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And I think what we see throughout God's word is that he determines the manner in which he gets the glory. So sometimes he's glorified in protection from persecution, and other times he's glorified in crushing. And this is seen in the message of the gospel, that in Christ, he chose to glorify himself in the way that was simultaneously the most horrific, but also the most necessary to pay the price for our sin. He could have protected. And and Jesus in the garden prays, if it be thy will, take this cup from me, right? But the father willingly crushed and the son was willingly crushed for the righteous payment of our sinfulness. So praise God for his protection of the church here in America to this point. For he continues to be glorified in it. But he is also glorified through the underground church in China and Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, Turkey. And the list goes on of brothers and sisters who experience true persecution. But let that truth remain sobering for us. For just as he is glorified in protection, he is also glorified in crushing. And so there could be a time when the crushing comes as well, and that's how he's glorified. So the story continues, and we move to where things really begin to change here in these first four chapters. So we move to chapter four, and this is the second dream. So this is the fourth court narrative, right? The fourth telling of what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And we read this in chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So notice the change of possession 
here of the language. Because now this is a self-testimony from Nebuchadnezzar recorded by Daniel for us. So he's writing out this letter. Peace be multiplied to you, he says. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Verse 3. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So, it sounds like really awesome, right? Like something's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and you'd be right to think so. But what gets too often lost in the stories of Daniel um, is the incredible work that God does through Daniel and his friends to make his name known in the heart and life of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is always talked about simply as the antagonist of this story. But I want us to see how Scripture emphasizes something completely different here. So the exact same group of people that Nebuchadnezzar addressed to bow down to his golden statue, all the people's nations and languages. The exact same group of people he addresses with this wonderful shout of praise and acclamation for the Lord. And notice how his relationship, again, with God is is shifting here. At the end of chapter 3, he simply calls God the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now he claims God as his own. However, we still see the broken persuasions of his culture gripping tightly to his flesh. As, so Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, and in telling his testimony here, that's what chapter 4 is here, he refers to the Babylonian God as my God. So there's still some broken sinfulness there. He's not quite fully acknowledged God as Lord here. But I want us to understand that God's sovereign rule knows no end. He exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. He will be acknowledged as God and Lord of all. Either you will do so submitting by His grace, or you will acknowledge Him as Lord of all reluctantly under His judgment. There is no place we can go to escape His rule and reign. And this ought to drown the believer in peace and joy, and ought to move the sinner to repentance. So the question is, where are you today? Because one way or another, we will all be humbled. So what happens? You go to verse 28. So Nebuchadnezzar is describing this dream, and he has this dream of a tree that extends all the way to the heavens. And so Daniel goes on to interpret the dream for him and tell him that he's the tree. And in this dream, the tree gets chopped down to a stump. And so Daniel has to deliver a message of, pretty humbling message to the king. They're like, yeah, guess what? You're the tree, but which also means you're going you're to be chopped down. Like something bad is coming to you. And so you go to chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 28, and this is what we read. So, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, 
To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. So what happens here is immediately the word is fulfilled. So King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, Daniel tells him the dream, and uh, Daniel at the end in verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. So Daniel's testimony to the king was like, look, if you'll practice righteousness and your iniquities by showing, break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen, and now he's standing on top of his palace, and he's like, look at what I've done. I've been pretty good for myself, right? Like he's starting to really like, listen to his own uh, headlines here. And then a voice, before he could even finish the thought, a voice comes from heaven. It's the Lord, and he tells him, that you're going to be driven, the kingdom's departed from you, and you're going to be driven from among the kingdom, and you're going to be made to eat grass like an ox, and so you're going to be completely humiliated, is what happens here. And so immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. So he's like a beast of a man at this point as he's humiliated. He's like a homeless hermit wandering about in the wilderness. And this is what we read in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So we come to the end of the story of King Nebuchadnezzar here. Here we see Nebuchadnezzar having had everything stripped away from him, much like Daniel and his friends in the exile. Everything's been stripped away from them. What do they cling to? Their faith in the Lord. And as they faithfully testify and witness to the glory of God, in front of and using their audience with the king as a platform and an opportunity to make God's name known, it is in this rock-bottom state that Nebuchadnezzar realizes the sovereign power of God. And he makes the statement, none can stay his hand. So all this time, God has been slowly drawing Nebuchadnezzar to himself. And Nebuchadnezzar has been gradually coming to the realization of who God is through the faithful witness of Daniel and his friends. For 40 years, Daniel showed loyalty and respect to Nebuchadnezzar as king of Babylon while remaining faithful to the Lord and faithfully bearing witness to his glory. 40 years. Do you believe the power of the gospel enough to endure 40 years of witnessing to your family, friends, community that needs it? I hope so. 
church, because all of them are looking to politicians to provide them the hope that only Christ can. And we need to faithfully testify to Christ that they may realize our hope is not in politicians, but in the providence of God. Because God is eternally sovereign, therefore the glory of God is to be supreme measure of our lives. We measure our lives based off of, am I glorifying, rightly glorifying the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one whom none can stay his hand, the one who is able to humble the prideful, the one whom all his works are right and his ways are just? And am I living as if he is sovereign or as if someone or something else is? That's the challenge for us as the church to live in submission to the sovereignty of God, glorifying His name, and let nothing compromise that. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before You, pray as Your church here in America who has been given freedom, religious liberty, beyond what is seen anywhere else in the world. But God, let us not look to the institutions or the people as giving us that privilege. But let us see that as coming from you for the purpose of your kingdom. May we worship no one or nothing else other than King Jesus. God, help us as your church to see that as long as we are in this world, no matter what governing rule we live under, we live under a kingdom of the world. So yes, we are called to pray for the well-being of the city of where we are, but God, never to the compromise of who or how you have called us to be. So God, give us the strength as your church to rejoice that you are glorified in persecution. And for many and for so long, for us, that has been through protecting us from persecution. But God, let us also acknowledge that you are also glorified through the crushing of persecution. So no matter where we find ourselves, God, give us the strength to endure for the glorification of your name and for the establishment of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.